and welcome to How to Deal When the Shit Gets Real podcast. I'm Marietta. And I'm Connie. And today we are talking with Don Gleason. So Don, how do you deal when shit gets real or really uh, in reality? Just tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Well, that's two questions. All right. Well, first of all, I'm honored <laughs> to be here. I think I appreciate the opportunity to talk talk about myself and some of my stories. I love leadership and I love talking about leadership. How do I deal when the shit gets real? You know, I really just get down to leadership basics. And we'll talk more about that as we go through it. But using some of the, the knowledge, the skills that I've learned over the years from so many authors. And while I'm a John Maxwell team member, I just got so many different books I've read. It's just it's so much fun. You said, Connie, you're from Chicago. I'm from Madison, Wisconsin. I grew up there, went to University of Wisconsin, and uh, just had a great time growing up playing football. My dream was to be an NFL football player. And then uh, my freshman year of college, when I got an F on my 30 count exam, I walked off the team. I had walked on, I walked off. And then oh, I was going to go back in the spring and I just never did. And uh, now that I have as many knee problems as I do, that's probably a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> so that would have been, that would have been brutal, but uh, got to be a civil engineer, got my bachelor's in civil and environmental engineering and uh, we'll talk more, but it uh, just led me into so many different opportunities and uh, I've just really been blessed. And, uh, and I found a great woman. Uh, we actually sat next to each other in fifth grade. We got Aww. married my senior year of high of college. Aww. We've been now married 39 years. It'll be 40 in March. Oh We've my got gosh. three beautiful kids, all in their 30s. Got four grandkids. So uh, we'd love to we'd love to get up and see them. They're in Kansas City and now in Phoenix. Oh, <laughs> the life of a grandparent. I love it. That's right. So uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your uh, 27 years in the Air Force and your job as a civil engineer? <laughs> what was funny is uh, I never planned on joining the military. I talked to so many friends of mine who, man, all I wanted to do was join the service. It was never my intention. My two brothers were enlisted in the Air Force, and that was the last thing I wanted to do. But on graduation, graduation day from college in 1982, I had 454 letters from companies saying, thank you, but we're not hiring right now. We'll oh, keep your man. resume on file. And I was just kind of decimated, but I was like, hmm, okay, we'll just keep on plugging forward. In uh, February of that year, I had interviewed with the Air Force. It was a snow day. So I ended up, he couldn't get, that recruiter couldn't get back to Madison. So about a month later, I finally got together with him. And he took me on trips to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base to learn about what engineers do in research and development. And we went down to Chanute Air Force Base, Rantoul, Illinois. And we got to learn what base civil engineers did. And I can remember coming home that night, been married, I think, three or four months to my wife. And she says, well, if we join, I want to go to Germany. And I said, well, we can't go to Germany if we don't join. So guess what? So on our six-month anniversary, I headed off to officer training school. And I have to tell you, OTS was a heck of a challenge for me. I was not disciplined. I had long hair. I, my, my gig line, man, it was as far off to the right as you could get. I was not <laughs> disciplined. I remember my first couple of weeks, I, uh, I think that first Saturday when we got our issue, I got cotton fatigues instead of permanent press because they had excess in my size. Well, that led to an hour of ironing and starching every day. And then I didn't take seriously the first writing assignment. The uh, flight commander said, I just, just tell me about yourself, one page. Well, I got remedial grammar for a half hour a day. And then the third one is I arrived at my maximum weight. Go back to that discipline piece. So I remember him calling me in and he said, tomorrow I'm picking you up at 725. You're going to weigh in. And if you're at or over, you're going to be on a flight home that afternoon. And this oh, wow. is where, this is why I love a few good men. Cause he said, am I clear? And I said, yes, sir. And he goes, am I clear? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, 
Yes, sir. I didn't eat or drink a thing for until 7.30 the next morning. So that was about 18 hours. I lost eight pounds because they were not going to kick me out. I mean, it was not healthy, but they were not going to kick me out. I was there and I was going to do what I had to do to to stay because I now had a wife and I I wanted to grow a family. So I wanted to figure out how to make this happen. But, you know, during my early years, what was neat is I got in early years of the Air Force. I got into all kinds of environmental programs. And I just love the opportunity to get out and about the base and meet people in different squadrons and learn about their missions. I enjoyed getting involved in the the company grade officer council. I remember people telling me, I think even my father-in-law told me, he says, don't volunteer, right? You get that picture all the time of people lined up and they say, I need a volunteer. And everybody steps backwards, except that one (laughs) poor soul. I was always stepping forward. I just loved getting involved in different things and meeting new people. And uh, so I enjoyed the extracurricular activities. I uh, became a vice president of the company grade officer council. And then I got involved in professional societies like the Society of American Military Engineers, led different programs. And I was big into various professional uh, networking events. In fact, it was, here's the one funny story I always tell about networking. I was, I just got promoted to first lieutenant. And the group commander, the colonel, calls me up on the phone. And the colonels never call lieutenants. You know? So I was like, no. <laughs> what's going on? And he says, Don, I'm walking into wing staff. I need an update on the combined federal campaign, right? The United Way program. Can you give that to me for the group? And I'm sitting there holding the phone like, uh, what? And, he goes, <laughs> and I'm thinking, nobody told me I'm the group POC. And he, he kind of about 15 seconds, it felt like an eternity, but about 15 seconds, he goes, Don, I'm kidding you. I didn't assign somebody. Now, right there was a great leadership lesson. He didn't say my lieutenant. He didn't say my secretary. He didn't say my deputy. He said, I, he took the responsibility. Mm-hmm. He's like, I didn't assign somebody to be the POC. Could you take this on for me? Now, he didn't direct me. He asked me, could you take this on for me? And of course, I saluted smartly and said, yes, sir, I'll do that. He says, I just need 50% contact by next week. Well, not only did I have 50% contact, I think I had like 30% donation of our goal because I was immediately able that day to get out, get my key workers established, talk to them about what, what it was, get the information to them. And this was the day before cell phones. This was the day before computers. We had no computers on our desk. This was pick up the landline and call people to make it all happen. But I had a network because of all the things I was doing and we made success. So I thought it was really kind of typify my whole career of how I got involved and got to, got to do things. I guess that's, a, that's probably the best thing about my 27 years. So as civil engineer, we got to do all the maintenance of the base infrastructure. Though I really got to focus in on the the uh, environmental programs. We'll talk more about that. Yeah, I've heard, a, you know, there's so many different types, types of engineers. And I don't think until we emailed you that I'd heard of a civil environmental engineer. So what exactly is an yeah. environmental engineer? Here's the fun part. Everybody says there really is no such thing as a civil engineer, right? <laughs> Meaning the mindset. So, to speak. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of like the old infrastructure engineer. So we, we maintain all the roads and the commodes, the facilities, the, the, the power, the water, the air conditioning, the heating, any of the renovations, but anything to do with a facility. Now, a fence is a facility, a pole is a facility. So just about anything of that's planted in the ground or operates is part of that. So we have wow. squadrons. When I commanded three squadrons, one had 100 people, one had 225 people, one had 350 people. So depending on the operation of, of the size of the, the mission, different people. So electricians of all types, 
utility guys of all types, even the water and wastewater, which was where I had really planned on being when I graduated college, designing wastewater treatment plants. Wow. I didn't know those things had to be designed, but I guess it does make sense. They have to work yeah. a certain way. That's right. You have yeah. to size size it all properly for the amount of water that's coming in and the amount of water you can go out and the, the amount of effluent coming in of the different types, suspended solids, biological oxygen demand. Now we're getting real technical. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's really interesting though. It, it's what got me excited. Can you tell us about your environmental awards? How does that work? How did you win them? Why did you win them? Because the whole thing is very interesting. Yeah. yeah. I got I to gotta take you back all the way to the fifth grade. Yeah. I'm, I'm going <laughs> to talk a lot about determining what you want to do. And it, for me, it goes back to the fifth grade. Remember in 1970, the first Earth Day, Senator Gaylord Nelson from Wisconsin had developed that and got it through and proclamated for the U.S. And I, was, I can still close my eyes and see myself sitting in that room, looking out the window, snow on the bushes. Now, this is April, but it's Wisconsin, snow on the bushes. It's a beautiful day. But the, the projects we did that day got me all excited about you know, how can I help clean America's waters? And this is where I got really excited about as I went through high school and college, I was really good at math and science. And I got into college and we got into designing wastewater treatment plants and water treatment plants. And I saw that as a way to clean up the effluent, the water coming out of the city or the companies, right, that was dumping into the lakes and streams and polluting the river and killing the fish, you know, having impacts on the uh, people. And you remember, uh, all of a sudden, I can't think of the, new, the city up in New York that had uh, the underground pollution in the groundwater and caused so much trouble, just like up in Flint, Michigan, with all the lead yep. in the water. So we've had yeah. a long history of those. So I saw those things happening. I said, I want to help fix that. And I got to do exactly that. So some of the programs I got to run that led into the environmental awards is the first thing that my boss gave me up at uh, K.I. Sawyer in Upper Peninsula, Michigan, was I want you to go around and inventory all the underground and above ground storage tanks. I had to kind of look at him a little bit. Really? And he goes, yep. I, we don't know where they're all at. I said, okay. Huh. Wow. Thinking, I can't imagine is- them not knowing where all of their, it's yeah. like, whoa. You, you would think, right? Yeah. But, but as I started going through it, all of the, the records were incomplete. The facility drawings were incomplete. Oh, no. So I would literally go to every building and walk around the building looking for some type of, of inlet or outlet, poking up a, a, mm-hmm. a vapor tube, something to tell me there was something underneath there. And then I would go inside the building and I would start talking to shop supervisors to see what could they possibly be thinking of as where a tank exists. And we found, oh man, there's 150, 200 tanks, probably half of them didn't, we didn't know they existed. Wow. So, then, so that led me into now writing the Spill Control Prevention Countermeasures Plan, SPCC which is basically you know, how, to prov- how to prepare for, prevent, and respond to spills. So that got notoriety from the inspector general when they came down and doing it, did an inspection. And then you might have heard of Superfund. Is that right? Have you? Mm-mm. Back in the days. So we had, a, we had a program called Installation Restoration Program, which was the Air Force version of Superfund, which is CERCLA, Comprehensive, I have to look it up, Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act. Say that was some marvelous. What a, I was going to say, what a mouthful. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, but it was all about finding where the uh, contamination had been put in the ground, finding it and removing it before it contaminates the groundwater. So I was leading that effort. And I think almost every Friday I was talking to the group commander, getting things on this that same group commander who had given me the task for combined federal campaign and then his successor 
getting approval to get money to go do, do different things to track that down. And we even discovered a trichloroethylene spill, TCE, is coming out of one of the hangars. So I was working with the United States Geological Survey, USGS, to find that, track it back down so we could clean it up. We had to stop the source, but we didn't know where it was coming from. Oh so my goodness. all of those different things led me into figuring out how to stop pollution, right? It goes back to my fifth grade piece. I want to stop pollution. So I started a staff, staff assistance visit program and I went around the wing to each shop talking to them about the hazardous materials they were buying, how to minimize the order. Because what happens on the last day, which was like last Thursday, the last day of the fiscal year, you have all this money. So you buy all these materials and mm -hmm. the shops have like 10 times more hazardous materials than they need. Mm -hmm. well, if we could zero that down, then we wouldn't generate all this waste a year later. So we started really walking through with them on all the rules and how to get in, in touch with that. So as I did very proactive on that, and I had some great bosses who really just let me run with the programs. I got uh, recognized with the Strategic Air Command Environmental Engineer of the Year of the Award in 1985, and the Thomas D. White Environmental Quality Award in 1986. And the funny thing was, the day that they announced the second one, my boss walks in and he goes, hey, congratulations, you just got notified about this. And by the way, we have a problem on the north side of the base. We just found some World War II chemical test kits, live mustard agent and live tear gas. Oh, no. World War II. Oh, my gosh. Says, we got a team coming from the Army out at uh, out in New, New Jersey, and you're going to be the base point of contact. So no time to celebrate the award. Get busy. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> that okay. So, but I true had, military fashion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I had developed a great relationship with the state of Wyoming and the uh, EPA Region 8. So I was able to call them up and say, hey, I got this situation. Just want to let you know. And they basically said, Don, you've been so good over the last two years. We know you're going to do it right. Just keep us engaged. And I had, I had talked to the wing commander. He did not want to tell him. But I was like, sir, you got to tell him. It's going to come out in the news. It's, it's going to be out everywhere. Yeah. So let's yeah, yeah, get yeah. ahead of it. And uh, so I, I was always a very proactive communicator with the regulators, which didn't always go well with the operational folks of the military. But I think it you know, <laughs> doesn't surprise me. Yeah. But, it, uh, you know, truth is always the best. What I, so I was able to do that and we got them cleaned up uh, one bad day out as they were working on it. All of a sudden, the guy was in the hole doing some digging and all of a sudden he comes running out and they're dousing him with water and they're setting up a decontamination line. I'm like, what happened? He goes, they broke into one of the vials and he got some some tear gas. Oh, um, oh it, no. It, it was live agent. It was it was high concentrations because that's what they used to prepare people oh for World War II. Yeah, so, yeah. What I was also blessed to do is win several major command leadership awards. So when I was at the Air Force Institute of Technology, getting my master's degree, when I was a, a base civil engineer, I was uh, at the, up in Malmstrom Air Force Base, Montana. I got a, the Lance Saijan Field Grade Off Leadership Award. And when I was in the headquarters USAFE at Ramstein, Germany, we were preparing to, uh, for the execution part of our Operation Iraqi Freedom. And uh, I got wow. leadership awards for all those. I was pretty blessed over time to, to really be and, in the right place and do some of the right things. Or and your wife got to go right. to Germany. And she did. <laughs> Would you believe we've been there twice? We spent seven years. Oh, I love it. In fact, I have a, I have those Bavarian hats. You know, they nice. do I got yeah. two of those with the pins all over them. I say, this is my European vacation. I love it. <laughs> I just have to ask out of curiosity, when you were doing all those tank checks and checkings and all that, did you ever look at the water cribs in Chicago? Was that ever part of you checking all the tanks or did they not include those? 
Not that I'm trying to think of what a water crib is. It's <clears throat> literally offshore tanks where they kept the oh. water supply for Lake Michigan. Yeah, no, we were 30, 30 miles inland from Lake Superior. So we weren't anywhere near gotcha. Lake, Lake Michigan or Lake Superior. I just had to ask because those are very weird anomalies as they, yeah. as they are. So I was like, did you go in one of them? Because I want to know more about it. Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah. <laughs> I've been jealous of some of my Navy and Army buddies with some of the stuff environmentally they got to do. So, and they were they were jealous of what I got to do. So it's kind of neat. Yeah, I was gonna say I was like, you're you were jealous of what your other friends did. You did so much. Like I don't yeah. even know. I don't even understand half of the things that you just said, no. uh, except for that they sound really impressive. <laughs> it was it was exciting. I I remember uh, I got together at the six month point after grad, you know, getting in the service, and then about two years later. And I was comparing what I'm doing with people, my peers out of college that were, and from high school to college that were with McDonnell Douglas helping design planes and the mechanical engineers designing you know, mechanical systems. They were doing nothing like I was doing. Uh, they were still carrying toolboxes or watching other people design and I was out leading programs. So I was really okay. glad that I got in the service. You know, back, back when that guy who said, I don't want to join the service, I would not be where I was today, where I am today, if I had not gotten in the service and taken that step forward. In fact, was I was meant to I was, be. Yeah, I posted something on social media this morning. There's a you get a turn back, a turnaround time or turn back time when you have the option to walk in that door or step back. And it can be scary walking in that door, mm-hmm. but when you do, you have no idea what it's going to release into your life. And I think that's. That's exactly what happened. When I joined the service, it changed my whole life. I was just thinking about designing wastewater treatment plants and drinking beer in Wisconsin. (laughs) I got to drink beer in Germany. It was even better. Yep, for sure. So are you still involved with like the environment and some of this, uh, the environmental civil engineering that you did in the past? You know, if I said that right. You did. You did. (laughs) Unfortunately, I'm really not. I, uh, when I, Decided to get out of the service in 2008. I, I retired in 2009 after 27 years. What I really wanted to do was get back into environment. And I joined Booz Allen Hamilton and I got to do a couple neat things um, with them. But I've really stepped away from that. In 2017, I started my own company doing leadership training and consulting. And now I'm operating a nonprofit helping military in transition. So I really had stepped away. But you know, I remember... Back to the day, just thinking about that, about being involved. When we were second lieutenants and first lieutenants, we would go places and we would all look at each other like, why does anybody want to be a base civil engineer? Now, the base civil engineer, like we said earlier, is responsible for everything, right? We just assume that the power is going to work, the water is going to work, the AC is going to stay on, the heat will stay on, the roads will be clean, but I'll take dedicated effort. And every time they go out, our boss would get beat up. And we're like, why do we want to take that job? This is just going to get beat up. But when I got to be a major, I got to be the chief of operations at a, at a base. And I got to see the impact I could have on the mission. What was more important to me was the impact I could have on the personal development of my team. To be able to give them a task, to be able to lead them in a task. Now, not, not directing them, not micromanaging. That's not leadership. Mm-hmm. That's management. You manage things, you lead people. I got to lead teams and do things that I never thought I could, we would get to do. And to see them succeed, to see them grow, to see people step off of the, the right path in the military and now be in front of me as a commander, getting an Article 15 or getting a letter of reprimand. 
It's seeing, being the ability to be able to turn them around and make them a model airman and see them grow and get, get rank. I remember a young man who was a staff sergeant got a second article 15 from me and he, he corrected himself. And when I was getting out of the service, he was a senior master sergeant. That really makes you feel good. So I really turned into leadership and how I could help other people um, grow. I remember being assigned a team of technical experts to lead a source selection for an environmental contract. Now, these were all technical experts. They were really, really smart, but their bosses didn't want them in their office. They didn't get along with others. So I had to figure out how to meld them together as a team and lead them in the right path to make the, uh, the proper source selection. And we did. And then uh, I got an opportunity as I was uh, Back when I was that, I just made that lieutenant colonel after being a major in squadron command. I got my bigger, my second squadron, bigger squadron. And one of my supervisors was a horizontal guy. And he took me out on a trip. And he showed me, he says, this, this uh, parking lot is terrible. We need to replace it. And this fence, we need to, and we need to, and we need to, and I had this long list of things. So I got out, I was getting out of the car and I said, so what do you want to do with all that information you just gave me? He goes, I don't know. I tell every squadron commander coming in that uh, we got to fix all these things and nobody ever does anything with it. I said, well, I'm going to do something with it. I said, I need your help. And we created a briefing and we gave the briefing to the wing commander. Now we didn't have a lot of money at the wing, but I gave the briefing of all the things that needed to be fixed. And there was lots. And uh, the wing commander was so impressed. He forwarded that briefing to the two-star general, Air Force, the uh, Air Force Material Command Civil Engineer, Major General, that afternoon. He said, this is the kind of thing my guys are doing. If you can give us some money, and he gave them out of money, we can fix things down here. And we did. Actually, we spent the next year fixing all those different pieces. And that relationship I formed with that supervisor who had never gotten anybody to take action was great. And then the reputation within his shop, I could go down there and they would, they would do anything for me to, to make things happen. So we, we really bonded. And what was the second neat part was you talk about that impact of the wing. Every place I was, the services squadron went best in the Air Force. I don't know why. It was at F.E. Warren. It was at Kirtland. Uh, in Albuquerque, it was at Malmstrom in Montana. We always won best in the Air Force because we would go in. I said, we'll take care of your facility. You take care of this food service. And they did. And we, we always won. So that was almost more satisfying to see them succeed. And that, again, that goes back to leadership. So I really, I stepped out of the environmental piece and really became passionate about mm-hmm. leadership. I mean, we could use a lot better leadership that at least. Yes. Minimum. And hey, you know, the leadership can lead into helping the environment. You never know. It depends on what that person's goals are. Yeah, I think, uh, unfortunately, the way most people are leading, I shouldn't say most, the way a lot of people are leading today is that directing and micromanaging. Yeah. I, watched, I watched people come after me, how they managed what I had been leading and they got in and they, so just a perfect example. I pretty much was hands off on snow control up in Montana. I'm sorry, in, in Omaha, Nebraska. I was group commander. I was pretty much hands off. But my predecessor, my successor came in, went down to snow control and started directing them where to send trucks and how to do it. And he would almost get out on the truck and show them. And I'm like, these guys have 30 to 40 years experience. These guys have won award after award after award. I think they know what they're doing. I don't mm-hmm. think you have to tell them. And, and unfortunately, what happened was when you dictate them that, like that, they do only what you tell them to do. 
they don't think on their own anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think if you take that to the wider scope, we start directing people and not letting them think, thinking that we as the leader know more than they do, everybody stops thinking. It was Carl Jung who said, 2% of the people think, 3% of the people think they think, and 95% <laughs> of the people would rather die than think. And mm -hmm. I think that leads partly into it of we've stopped people from thinking. So we have to be careful as leaders how we how we lead people. It goes back to that colonel and he said, he didn't direct me to pick up the combined federal campaign. He said, Don, would you take this on for me? Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Words make all the difference. Words make all the difference. Actually, at my job, I really connect with what I just said because my boss is like, yeah, I see you as a leader in our department because you think you think and you ask questions and a lot of or a couple of my coworkers, they are just so used to the job they just do without thinking so I, I'm like oh yeah nope I know exactly what you're talking about and we have to be thinking about the first order effects, the second order effects, you know, because it just every situation doesn't always play out just like the last one did. And we mm -hmm. have to figure out what's different. So I want to hear more about your mastermind concept and how that yeah. plays into you helping with military transitioning out of the military into the civilian world. Oh, you bet. So I have to go back to the book Napoleon Hill wrote in 1939 or published in 1939 called Think and Grow Rich. Have you guys read that book or seen that book? No. no. So what's interesting about the book is Andrew Carnegie in 1919 commissioned a professor out of the University of Chicago, Napoleon Hill, to go interview 20,000 people and find out what the keys were to success. Now, 500 of them were the most successful people of that time. Small, small name guys, Woodrow Wilson, Teddy Roosevelt, Thomas Edison, Andrew Carnegie himself, or Carnegie, depending how you say it, uh, mm -hmm. Charles Schwab, Henry Ford, 12 years after the Model T. He's getting the, uh, the, the uh, production line going. So he went out and talked to all these people, and he found 13 principles that led to their success. And one of them is the mastermind. The mastermind is a group of like-minded people coming together for a common purpose. And almost every one of those 500 had a inner circle, a team of people that they could get together with on a regular basis. And they did, they got together. And in fact, today, people who run masterminds, it, it's, uh, attendance is not voluntary. Attendance is mandatory because you have to develop that relationship to be able to talk into each other and help each other and that trust and the vulnerability. So they would all get together and they would help each other achieve the goals. Can you imagine Henry Ford coming in and talking to some of those people about the challenges he was facing on his industry? Yeah. And Carnegie and Thomas Edison on, on uh, inventions. Talk about the brain power in that room. And you would think these guys all know what to do individually. Mm -hmm. No, we don't. Because the, in a mastermind, Napoleon Hill says, when two minds come together, they form a third mind third mind being much better than either of the others independently. So one plus one truly does equal three. And I love that. So what we did is we took that concept and we said, how can we apply that to military transition? So my buddy and I were sitting at a transition assistance program 
And the CEO said to the people in the room, hey guys, don't transition alone. Now that's a pretty simple statement. And what she meant was, we got plenty of resources to help you. Don't think you have to leave here and, and, not, and not see us again. But my buddy and I looked at Matt Shear, and I'm going to talk more about him. We looked at each other and said, how can they not transition alone? They come to the transition program that the government leads. They come to all these other transition programs because nobody likes the government program. And then they go home and they take that folder and they set it on their desk with good intentions. And pretty soon it's in the drawer and it's in the second drawer. And pretty soon they're three months away from transition, separating or retiring, and they haven't done anything. So we said, how can we use that mastermind process to build a community, to build accountability and help them take actions and get results. So what we do is we, every two weeks, we have cohorts of eight to 10 people, all ranks, all services, all career fields. We don't make any distinction on that. They come together and we have a process where we walk through and we identify an issue that somebody wants to bring to the group. We ask questions. We don't give advice right away. We're not mentors yet. We just ask questions. We get them to think into their problem. Remember a conversation a few minutes ago about thinking? Mm -hmm. So we ask them questions, and get them to think into their problem and really define it. And that helps us understand it. And then we can give advice. And then walking out of there, we ask them, okay, what one or two things are you going to take action on to solve your problem? And when they come back two weeks later, we ask them, what happened? Did you take it? Did you take the advice? Did you implement it? Was it successful or do we need to talk about it again? And we have addressed just tons of issues that normally don't get addressed. A couple of these you'll like. Had a spouse who said, well, she was actually former military, but her, uh, they were in a conversation of, where do we relocate to? And she, when the husband said, I want to move right next to my parents. And she said, I don't want to be a within a thousand miles of your parents. <laughs> How do you get the two of them together? That, they were at a block on where they were going to go. So we talked about the book, Crucial Conversations, and how to have that conversation, how to keep people in the safe zone of communication. And we gave ideas, and they had the conversation, and they reached an agreement. Oh, that felt so good. We had a young man who, uh, who got 100% VA disability. But guess what? He has both arms, both legs. He doesn't have PTS, post-traumatic stress. He doesn't have traumatic brain injury. And he's seeing all these other people who have 100% disability. And he started having regrets. It's kind of like survivor's remorse, right? When somebody yeah, gets killed yeah. next to you and you don't. He started really feeling guilty. And we spent some time talking about that and where he was. And now he's feeling much better. He walked away feeling much better. We had a conversation with an internship gentleman, a gentleman at military. You know, one thing they have now is the SkillBridge internship program and through Hire Our Heroes. And there's a bunch of them. And they're fantastic. I wish I had that 12 years ago. Yeah. That would have been so cool. But anyway, so... He had been promised like at week four that he'd get a job offer. And this was like week 10. He only had two weeks left. And he thought that that company had broken trust with him and he wasn't going to get something, but they weren't willing to tell him. He was ready to punch out and go somewhere else. So we said, relax. And we just that night happened to have three or four people in the room who had gone through something similar. So we talked about it. The next day, we set him up to have that conversation. It goes back to crucial conversations. But remember, I tell you, we got all these other books out there besides John Maxwell. I love John Maxwell, but he's not the only one. Like my teammates may think I'm, I'm wrong by saying that, but there's so many good books. I don't think they would. We, uh, we set him up for his conversation with the VP the next day. And he said, VP said, no, Gil, honestly, in two days, I'll have that offer for you. And he's now working with that company, just loving, 
life. So we got story after story where we helped these people be able to uh, resolve different issues. These aren't the standard issues you get when you're talking about how to do a resume or how to, you know, prepare for an interview or how to do an elevator pitch that most mm-hmm. typical present uh, transition programs work on. Mm-hmm. These are those behind the scene things that hold people back. And yeah. so here's two key metrics that we're working on. We have been able to prove about a 20 times value over cost. It costs us about $1,950 to put an individual through our program for six months with all the different things we do. And uh, we've been able to document over a 20 times value. So if it costs 19000 he's getting a $40,000 value out of it. That's pretty significant. Here's one that I love. Syracuse University, about six years ago, did a study of military leaving the service. And when they leave their job, the first job, and they found that military post getting out, they leave their first job at the rate of 28% within six months. Wow. 44% within 12 months. Wow. 64%, almost two thirds in 24 months. Wow. Now we've been in operation 18 months. We've had 38 people go through the program. A bunch of them were last summer. So they're over 12 coming in 15 months. Only 7% of our people have left their job. Wow. That's amazing. That is a big impact. And we found that two of those left within a couple of weeks because they immediately found out because we had talked about values and culture and recognizing that and knowing your own so that you mesh. And they quickly found out that, no, what I was sold was not right. And I do not mesh here. I do not fit here. It's time for me to leave. I'm not even going to wait six months. I'm not going to try to make it work. I'm Mm -hmm. out. And they got another job. So so even though we're at 7%, I don't want to justify that. But they, I, I feel good that they quickly found it and that we bring them yeah. back and tell other people, how did I recognize that? Because you got to reach inside yourself. And we're not good at that in the military. Yeah, we, no. we come into an organization, the boss is the boss, the first sergeant's the first sergeant, the chief is the chief, suck it up and get to work, right? Yeah. And, not, I, and, and now you get an option. You get an option to pick your role, your location, you know, sometimes even the things you get to do. So you got to know what you want. Yeah, absolutely. So how was your transition out of the military? Like, do you have any regrets? Do you wish you did anything different? Do you wish you had your program? (laughs) Um, I wish, I wish I had our program. I wish we had an internship program, but I don't regret leaving when I left. I don't, and I don't regret what I did. Um, And I, Trying to think of all the questions you just asked. Uh, I think it went pretty. I think it went pretty easy. So here it was in a nutshell. Three years prior, I went through my first transition assistance program. It was the executive program because I was a colonel, and uh, so colonels and chiefs at the E nine level, sixes and E nines go to a special program. And uh, so I started preparing me and thinking into the question I want to talk about. What do you want to do next? Yeah. And I thought back to my fifth grade when I went to Earth Day. And what I wanted to do and how I got my civil and environmental engineer degree and the things I got to do and the excitement I had. And then I started thinking about all the other stuff. I got to, to, to design some projects on facilities. Wasn't excited. I did them. Check mark. Yeah, not really excited about it. Not where I wanted to be. I remember going out and doing construction. No, not really that excited. I even got to go to Baghdad and lead the $12.8 billion reconstruction program in terms of the programming of projects, of 3,250 projects, getting them into the construction side. 
not something I wanted to do in the future. That was exciting. I learned a lot. I learned a lot about myself and about others from a leadership perspective, but it wasn't what I wanted to do. So I really came down to, I want to be back in environmental or I want to be in emergency management where I had also made a name for myself, which we hadn't talked about and won some awards. And that's what I wanted to do. <clears throat> and I was lucky enough. I went to, uh, we had a person on the Booz Allen's on the headquarters staff at the Pentagon who worked for Booz Allen, who was supporting us in, in leading different transformation efforts. And I went and talked to her and I said, I would like to talk to you about a job with Booz Allen. It was neat. She said, we've been waiting for you. <laughs> That's crazy. And they I said, knew it. I said, so why didn't you come to me? She goes, we made a promise to the two-star, the major general. We would not ask, we would not talk to any staff who were leaving to, to, to cause them to leave early. So we're, we were oh. waiting. We've, been, we've been waiting. And I said, well, let's have lunch. So <clears throat> we had lunch and then uh, we went out to the member of the Professional Society of American Military mm -hmm. Engineers. We went out to a conference in Salt Lake City. And they interviewed me one night at dinner, five of them and one of me for four hours. Sitting oh, around boy. A table. And then two days later, they flew me to San Antonio and I had eight one hour interviews, one after the other all day long, including lunch. Oh, my gosh. <clears throat> and they wow. hired me and I got to do environmental and I got to do emergency management. Talk about an intensive mm -hmm. interview project. Good Lord. Yeah. Well, they were bringing me in at the senior associate level, which was into business development. So they really had to know, you know, would I fit the business case? Because at that level, you have to have a business case makes, uh, to hire Makes you. sense then. But holy moly. Yep. Uh, I was, oh, I was exhausted. <laughs> I, I bet. That's like being interrogated for eight hours. <laughs> it was. It was. So since you talked about, um, you think there are other more important books, of course, than just John Maxwell, what's one of your other favorite books aside from a John Maxwell book? Oh, um, Patrick Lencioni's um, Five Dysfunctions of a Team. He goes through the five dysfunctions and how to overcome each dysfunction. I, I couldn't quote them all, but the first one gets into uh, um, being able to have conflict. Or maybe it's not the first one, but one of them what really resonates with me is conflict. We push back on all conflict and conflict can be productive up to a point. And knowing where that point is when you cross that line into being personal, personal attacking, that's when it becomes unproductive. But we need to have interplay. We need to have to be able to talk openly and say, well, I disagree with that. You don't have to say, I'm that, that, that idea is stupid. You're an idiot. You've just crossed yeah. the line. But when you say, I disagree with that idea for these things. And, and I think what John Maxwell has really helped me understand is listening, um, not to respond, but listen to understand. Yes. It's one so of my favorite you, things that he's ever said. Yeah. Yeah. So when you come into that conversation and you just say, I don't like this for the following reasons. Can you help me understand where my thinking is wrong or why you think that this is the right answer? And then sit back and shut up and listen. Yes. And not try to defend yourself, right? Try to defend your position. But today we are so locked in this. I'm right and you're wrong. Yeah. In fact, yeah, yeah. In fact another book that really uh, impacted me last year was the book, The Third Option by Miles McPherson. Have you seen, have you heard of that one? Mm-mm. He's an NFL football player turned pastor in San Diego, leads a huge church, and uh, he has come up with, it doesn't have to be A or B, it can be C. We don't have to be liberal or conservative. We can be moderate. You know, yes. Almost every yeah. issue, you know, it doesn't have to be Broncos or Raiders. Maybe it can be a good game. You know, mm -hmm. we, can, we can agree to disagree and just have fun uh, yeah. in some situations or to understand each other. I'm going to have to so, give my husband that first book because I have a feeling he would like it because their unit is um, 
to put it nicely, very disorganized right now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you would you would not believe how many organizations that fits. And and he Patrick mm-hmm. Lencioni does a great job writing it because it's a story about a person being brought into a company to fix the dysfunction. And she walks through step by step by step. The CEO is a female, walks through step by step by step how she fixes it. And it's it's mm-hmm. really well done. And Patrick okay. runs Patrick Lencioni runs most of his books in a story. I okay. like that. I like it. Yeah. I think my husband will like it. I'm going to tell him to read it. Yeah. <laughs> tell him that he should read it. There you go. Christmas, Christmas uh, present, right? Yeah. There you go. Don't listen he, to this episode. Yeah, he's going to look at you and say, <laughs> he's going to say, really a book for Christmas? Yeah. <laughs> says, but yeah, if you read it, I'll give you a beer. <laughs> then it'll be a true gift. That's right. Yes. That's right. So tell us more about your uh, nonprofit and how, mm-hmm. like, how do you find people? what's the nitty gritty of it yeah, yeah so and how can people help you yeah. also what's what's fun is i'm actually running two companies which i didn't think i would ever do but i have a, <laughs> I have a for-profit company called achieve new heights and then the not-for-profit military transition roundtable real real quick the for-profit is about train leadership training and consulting mm-hmm. leadership consulting using training and speaking and coaching really about solving the leadership problem that we just talked about helping people really understand how to be a better leader the mastermind concept that you were talking about where you like sat down with people or is that for the um that is that your nonprofit? the mastermind we're using in the nonprofit. okay i just wasn't sure thank you you can use it you can use it in both yeah And and we talk about masterminding a book like take any one of these books behind that that same towel there or up there on the shelf and you mastermind <laughs> through it getting people to think into each chapter um but doing what we're doing with the nonprofit even takes it even deeper gotcha. so so what i'm looking for there is if anybody wants to learn about how to improve leadership in their organization using john maxwell stories my stories other book stories love to have a conversation with them but you're really asking about the nonprofit. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so i think that's become my passion project now we are connecting with people through programs like four block other transition assistance programs where we help um, people in there and learn about you know, resumes interviewing etc uh, we connect with them on linkedin people who are put up there transitioning military we connect with them and we, we develop a relationship with them and if it fits we say hey would you be interested in this program now we don't do is come right up on the you know cold call and say hey hey connie i'm don gleason and i run the military transition program and i would like you in my program here's the here's the flyer here's the times would you come we don't do that we don't do cold calls like that we develop the relationship first get to know them then so when we have some trust then we invite them in if we think it'll fit. There are some people that it won't fit. There are some people that are not coachable, not teachable. Yeah. We don't, we don't take our time on those. We take people who can really benefit. So we've had 38 people graduate, about 43 people in the program now. And we have about 80 people who are working on timing. Is this the right program, the right timing, all those kind of things. And some of them are going to say no, and, and that's okay. So um, I think that's, that's how we find them. Um, what we do then is we use the mastermind concept for the meetings every two weeks. We then once they come into the program and we, when they come into the program, they commit to be there. That's one thing that we're really working hard on is that commitment. And we then, feel that. <laughs> yeah, we, under, we, we understand that for sure. It's, it, it's too easy to say yes and then never show up. Exactly. Yes. Mm-hmm. So and time we, is valuable. Time is valuable. So just tell me up front. It's not my program. I don't have time for it. Mm-hmm. That's fine. No yep. judgment. 
you go do what you need to do. If you want to come back, you come back. Exactly. So, so we also, my, my, my partner, Matt Shear is an expert. He's written about five books on LinkedIn for military, particularly. And uh, he runs different seminars through Project Management Institute. He runs them on different bases. We did one this last spring across the West Texas. Um, all virtual, unfortunately, on those. We were hoping to be in person, but COVID didn't allow it. So mm-hmm. he's really good at LinkedIn and helping people understand how to develop their profile and then use it to network and develop those relationships. And he's taught me a lot. And then I focus in on how to answer that question. What do you want to do next? Think back to what I said. Fifth grade, Earth Day. I had a vision as a kid. It ran through every time I got into something that I didn't enjoy. That was kind of a, that's not what I want to do. But every time I got into environmental, I loved it. So it told me right away when I got out, that's what I want to do. I remember working with one gentleman. He was in uh, Alabama. He joined the army. He said, like, there's nothing here for me. I got to get out of here. So I was, I was talking to him about what he wants to do. And he says, I want to be a project manager. And I said, so why? And he, we start talking. I shouldn't ask, I shouldn't ask why questions. Coaches don't ask why questions. They ask what questions. <laughs> Why questions make people defend? What questions make people be inquisitive? So I just failed there. But I asked him, so what's behind that? And I asked, so what was the most exciting project you worked on in the the military? He goes, when I was in D.C., um, the dream team, the NBA basketball Olympics team, went and got the gold medal, Mm -hmm. came back, and they were all coming to D.C., and they were going to meet with the kids in D.C. He said he arranged that for the kids to meet him. And when the NBA players talked about where they came from and out of poverty and out of low income and how they had succeeded, all these low income poverty kids of DC said, they came from where I'm at. I can do that too. Mm -hmm. He said their eyes just lit up. He said he was so excited that day. He says, I want to work with kids and help them get out of where they're at and develop like I did out of Alabama, like NBA players did. And that's where he's going now. And it's so exciting to see people when they get that. That's what I want to do next. So we do LinkedIn. We do what next? I use the DISC personality assessment. We do the mastermind. It's all included in the program. That's about just under $2,000 per person for six months. That's so cool. It sounds like an amazing program. It is. And we definitely have to hook you up with, um, I don't know if our listeners remember our episode with KP and he has the morning formation podcast Mm. where he talks about um, basically the military transition and interviews people like yourself to get that type of information uh, more readily available for people. I would love to meet him. Yeah. We'll have to hook. We'll have to connect you guys. Absolutely. So I have to ask, what is John Maxwell like? Like, I just, just curious. Uh, I've never got a one-on-one time with him. I'll tell you that, but he is the most. Yeah. But I tell you, you you feel like it when you're in a room with 300 executive directors and you get basically one on time, one on one on one time, he's speaking just like to you and he's giving you advice of how he's come through the program and how he's improved as a speaker and how he's improved as a coach. Um, That doesn't surprise me. To listen, yeah, to listen to his stories um, is is life changing. It's it's impactful, and uh, and the way he's built the team, he was very clear when they started the team. It was not a mentorship component. He wasn't going to do it. Period. Dot. So they developed a mentorship part. So he has five key faculty: one in business development, business building; one in speaking; one in coaching; one in thinking; and one in. Did I say speaking? Speaking, yes. coaching business building, leadership. And, there you go. Yeah, got them all. And they, they do calls 
two calls a week, each of them. So there's 10 calls, each a couple hours. So you pick a lane and you get in and you, they'll come in with a teaching and then it's just Q&A. So you call up one of the guy who's doing leadership is the CEO of all of John's businesses. He spends like 38 out of 40 hours a week. Well, 68 out of 75 hours a week with John because they're traveling the world. He's the man and he's That's teaching cool. leadership to us. And he's, he's next to John every day and bringing lessons to us every week. That's awesome. And, and that, so then we have, we have all of that plus the platform website with just tons of, of content that we can use. We have uh, a whole peer-to-peer team that's getting mentored by those leadership folks who are now mentoring us. So it, it's a, it's an incredible program with all kinds of different facets, but it's all based upon what he calls the JMT DNA, the John Maxwell team DNA. And he says it to us on the first day of certification. He's very clear. If you can't live with it, then it's time for you to leave. I'll reimburse all your fees. I'll send you home. No questions asked, no judgment. But I want you, when you're here, you are, you're in my program. It's because this, this is his, we're, we're borrowing his name. Yeah, and, absolutely. And so uh, so he wants to make sure that we we buy it right. We use it right. So he's, makes, he's just a great individual. Makes sense. He's now 75. So I don't know how much longer we're going to have him with. We're just celebrating 10 years with the John Maxwell team this year. Oh my year. gosh. And, I didn't realize uh, he was 75. He is. Yeah, him and probably John Kabat-Zinn are like, two of my favorite people to read. So right? I love that. I love that you work with them. That's so awesome. Yeah. It's, okay. it's, it's quite exciting. You talk about personal growth. I, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you can't, but not want to grow. All right. You ready for one final fun question as Rietta calls them? Sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you had a magic wand, what would you use it for? Uh, no, I asked my wife this question earlier today in preparation. Oh, really? And, uh, and, <laughs> what did she I say? I struggled with this one. So what did she say? I'm going to give you two answers. Personally, she said, I would have a magic to wand Germany. to transport, <laughs> no, to transport my grandkids from Phoenix in Kansas City to San Antonio so we could play with them. Oh, and then, so and then transport them back home. I love that. That's so I, sweet. I, I Spoken like she, a true grandma. Yep. Yeah, she, she nailed it. She, uh, yes. we, we, we miss being with the grandkids. Oh, yeah. Professionally, sure. if I could have a magic wand, I would get people to develop a life plan. Hmm. To think beyond what I want to do today or tomorrow or this year, right? We always think about yeah. New Year's resolutions. I want to lose 10 pounds. I want to mm-hmm. read a book. But we don't think about why do I want to lose 10 pounds? Why do I want to read that book? And how does it fit with the rest of my life? And I think too often as military are separating, and I'm, I'm really focused on military here, and they're separating, they've never had that option. So just the idea, they come out and say, I want work-life balance. And then they're ready to take a job where they have to drive an hour and a half each way to work every day. Yeah. I'm like, what happened to work-life balance? Yep. And they take a job that's going to run 60, 70 hours. And what happened to work-life balance? And they hadn't really defined what that is and what they want. They just, they mm-hmm. said the words, but they haven't put the boundary. There's another great book by Dr. Henry Cloud, Boundaries. Puts the boundaries on how that's going to happen. And I think if we really thought about that, then we would know, 
I want to lose 10 pounds because I want to be in better shape because I want to be healthy because I want to last for 20 years because I got grandkids who are now one and a half. He'll be two in November. And I want to play with him for 18 years. I want to take him on his first camping trip, his first fishing trip, maybe his first hike, you know, hunting trip. And transport with, him to you with your Transport him in <laughs> and, and teach him. Like I didn't get, I, neither of my grandparents really were able to do that with me. One, one had passed away when I was six and one was just not in good shape to be able to do it. So I want to change that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, but, I, but I think you have to develop that life plan to really think about it. John Maxwell says it's not a goal plan because goals expire. You know, the law of the rubber band says when tension decreases or goes away between where you are and where you want to be, the energy behind it dies. But if you keep that, that tension and, and, and always thinking about where you want to be, then the energy is always behind it. And that's why I'm constantly worried about what I eat working out, how many steps I take a day, logging all my food, sleeping well, all of that mm-hmm. to help me live a longer life. And you can take that through every area, spiritual relationships, et cetera. That's the life plan. So I, that's well, what I would do. I would say you are well on your way. Yeah. Yep. I absolutely love the life plan because I never thought of it that way. But when I took my job, I took it because that's what I envisioned for my life because it did give good like work life balance and a lot of other things that like ticked boxes for me. Good. But I never really thought of it. I, I just thought of it as like, this is the job I want. I didn't think of it as like, oh, yes, this fits my life plan. Mm-hmm. But that's what it is. I think so too often, I absolutely love that. <laughs> yeah, too often we see it later, or we say, "Oh, this doesn't fit my life plan." Yeah, and, and we get we get ready to walk away. Think back to the impacts that we've had through the mastermind. Mm-hmm. These guys were ready to walk away from their internship, walk away from their company, because things weren't happening the way they expected. But they were afraid to ask the question. One guy said, "I'm working 60 hours a week. I don't want to do that. I want to get down to 40." So the only way for me to get there is go get a new job. And we said, no, how can we help you have the conversation with your boss? And guess what? The boss is shedding work and they're getting him down to 45 and he's really happy and he's staying. So there you go. So there's the power of the mastermind. And the power of your voice, really. And I just want all of our (laughs) listeners to know that Don has been smiling through this whole thing. (laughs) You can tell how much he believes in it every word that he's saying and i'm only mm-hmm. saying this to you all because you can't see how excited he is <laughs> I, love, I love what i'm doing and i feel like it, it just needs to be said like it was actually the first thought right when we asked you the first question i'm like man he loves this <laughs> and at that note thank you for joining us don oh. and uh this is how to deal when shit gets real and don't forget to listen to us every friday and rate and review and we will oh. see you all next episode thanks for the opportunity